We are helping our soldiers, we're helping uh, our people. We're, we're actually sick of uh, sitting at home and doing nothing, so that we want to help by doing anything, by helping uh, our men that are on the war. Maria Milieko is an 18-year-old in Kyiv. She and other women are singing traditional Ukrainian songs as they roll out dough on a long table in the basement of a church. We are preparing food for our soldiers that defend our city, like not the army, but the territory defense. We're making traditional Ukrainian food, bareniki, filled with uh, potato or meat or even cheese. Yeah, and so like, it's like a pierogi or it's like a dumpling. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah like dumplings. Okay. Later, they'll deliver the food to nearby troops. While so many others are fleeing Ukraine, Maria and her family have decided to stay. As any Ukrainian people, I'm uh, <laughs> very angry. I'm furious, and I, I want them to go back to their country. Just, just do whatever you want in your country. This is my home, and I will defend it by any ways I can. I wanted to join the territory defense, but my parents wouldn't let me. But right now, I do whatever I can, whatever I, my parents let me. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 1st. As of this afternoon, Kyiv is still under Ukrainian control. A Russian convoy 40 miles long has been inching closer to the city. The Pentagon said Tuesday that the convoy was stalled and the Russian troops seem to be regrouping, frustrated that no Ukrainian cities have fallen yet. And to the east, Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, is surrounded by Russian troops. Thousands of people there are without power or heat in freezing temperatures. Heavy fighting continues and civilians have died. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke to the EU on Tuesday in a desperate plea to lawmakers for help. Even the interpreter broke down as he was translating. We're fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Despite the fact that all large cities of our country are now blocked, nobody is going to enter and intervene with our freedom and country. And believe you me, every square of today, no matter what it's called, it's going to be called, as today, Freedom Square in every city of our country. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. There have been demonstrations on the streets of St. Petersburg and Moscow. Some Russians are protesting the war. Many have been arrested. My colleague, Paul Sony said the fact that these protests are happening at all is pretty remarkable. The fact that we have seen even limited protests in Russia is a fairly big deal because the status quo is essentially you go out to protest and the minute you go out to protest, you're packed into a police van. So the fact that we're seeing anything at all is quite a big deal. And there are a lot of signs, comments from Russian cultural figures, Russian oligarchs, and then everyday Russians, comments on Telegram, Facebook, that suggest that there are a lot of Russians that are really unhappy with this decision and really unhappy with this war. It's hard to know how widespread that feeling is, though, especially outside of the big cities. 
But no matter where they are, people in Russia are already feeling the harsh sanctions from the West. We called Paul to talk about how these sanctions work and how they've been showing up in Russians' everyday lives. It's a really scary thing. I think every Russian is having flashbacks right now to a similar currency crisis that they had in 1998, where the ruble was devalued when the Russian government defaulted and people lost their savings overnight. Suddenly, everything that you purchase in Russia that has some sort of import or is made abroad or even has parts that are made abroad is suddenly rapidly increasing in price because the ruble is dramatically declining. If you are still paid in rubles, which everyone in Russia is by law, then you are having to spend potentially double for those items or more, depending on how much the currency devalues. Also, it means that the real value of any savings that Russians are keeping in rubles is going to dramatically decline. The one thing that is the case is Russians have an acute memory of the 1998 currency crisis, and as a result, many of them hold their savings in dollars or euros, something that we don't see here in the United States, people holding their savings in a foreign currency. That's something that Russians do do. Often they even have dollar or euro-denominated accounts within their own bank account where they can switch money back and forth. But the problem is, is that the savings rate in Russia is not very high. Only about a third of Russians, according to recent polls, actually have savings. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck and your salary is still coming in rubles, and those rubles can buy much less than they could yesterday because all of a sudden an imported washing machine, an imported car, imported food, all of that is you know still being priced according to whatever currency it's you know country it's being imported from, you suddenly can buy a lot less. And what about in everyday items, things like food or gas? So Russia had significant sanctions in 2014 when it first invaded Ukraine. And as a result of those, Russia banned a lot of imported food products from the West. Hmm. And that spurred a growth of domestic food production. So much of Russia's food had been imported prior to that. It did kind of develop Russian agriculture. So On the food front, the country should be slightly more insulated than on other other things where stuff is not made domestically. Because if something is made domestically, yes, maybe they import, if it's food, maybe they import fertilizer from abroad or maybe they import tractors from abroad or whatever it is. But if their labor is paid in rubles and the product is produced domestically, that's going to have less effect. That price is going to not raise as much as something that's fully imported. So because... Russia did have that experience in 2014 where they had a similar shock and they did end up growing the domestic food production industry. They theoretically should have slightly less impact on the food front. But the places where they're going to have huge impact are anything, and they don't they don't really produce any electronics. So, you know, cell phones, a lot of cars are put together in Russia, but they're still importing the parts for those cars from abroad. So the prices of cars or the prices of any sort of large consumer goods like refrigerator, washing machine, all of these things would, you know, potentially double, triple in price for Russians overnight, depending on how dramatically the ruble ends up changing when this all shakes out. Paul, is there a sense that these sanctions are actually working? You know, this question of how do sanctions work, when do sanctions work, are they working, is a really, really complex one to answer. 
There are a lot of political scientists who have tried to do work on this. But one of the problems is that each situation is slightly different. The power of each sanction is different. For example, for eight years, we've seen different kinds of sanctions on Russia. Nothing has been like this. This is far more extreme than anything that we've ever seen. And so when we ask ourselves, do sanctions work? Well, it depends. Um, how important is the thing that you're trying to influence to the country's leader, to the country's people? How much are they willing to sacrifice for that? And how strong are the sanctions? But there's absolutely no way that these sanctions on the Russian central bank cannot be somehow playing into the calculus of the Kremlin right now. This is a really significant threat to the Russian economy. So, Paul, is any of this affecting how Russians see this war or how they might see Putin? One point maybe worth making is... I think there's a conventional wisdom that once the sanctions are so harsh on Russia, Russians will realize sort of the error of Putin's ways. And the one sort of dilemma in that line of thinking is that there isn't a free flow of information in Russia. So Russians are not actually getting the full story of what's happening in Ukraine. In fact, Russian state news is presenting it as a limited operation in the Donbass region of Ukraine. They're saying that no civilians are being killed. They're only striking at Ukrainian military targets. They're not saying anything about the fact that big cities like Kiev and Kharkiv are being surrounded and shelled. And so I think when you get that kind of asymmetry of information and such intense sanctions, it's kind of hard to predict how Russian people will react to that, right? And in addition to causing, hey, I wish we weren't doing this war, it can also cause, you know, even more anti-Western sentiment, even more pro-Putin sentiment, depending on what sources of information Russians are looking at. Because if you're Russian and you don't even think there's a really big war going on in Ukraine, you don't think that Russian forces are surrounding Kiev and trying to overthrow the government, and then simultaneously your government's telling you that the reason these sanctions are happening is because the West has decided, you know, the United States has decided to finally destroy us, you might come to very different conclusions than some who has open access to information outside of Russia would. You know, Paul, I felt pretty jaded and cynical about sanctions before we started this conversation, and now I feel like existential dread. Yeah, I think we've kind of in the last eight years gotten accustomed to this sense that sanctions don't work on Russia, you know, because so many rounds of sanctions on various different people, on various different companies, even certain sectors of the economy have been applied on Russia over the past years in response to all sorts of things, in response to the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, um, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the intervention in the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential election. You know, Russia has had multiple rounds of sanctions for many different things, and it has seemed constantly like it fails to curb or deter the Kremlin's behavior. But I do think this is really different. This level of sanctions is a completely, completely different level that the U.S. and Europe have not gone to before, and it will have massive, massive effects across Russia. One of the places where I think we've crossed a Rubicon is there has been a lot of thinking in the U.S. government and in European capitals about how do we punish the elites in Russia, deter the elites in Russia, the government, perhaps the oligarchs that are enabling them, but not punish everyday Russians. I think there's been a really significant attempt in the past to not do things like this because the U.S. government is constantly saying, we don't have a problem with Russians. We have a problem with what the Kremlin's doing. And individual Russians 
only have so much influence on who is in the Kremlin. This is, as we know, it's not like this is some sort of bright shining democracy. So I think there has been a hesitancy in the West to do things that will have real impact on Russian people. But I think what happened in this case is you have an incredibly devastating war on Ukraine, incredible outrage and feeling of how do we stop this without getting into a direct shooting match with the Russians that could cause World War III to nuclear powers directly in conflict with one another. And so I think they have escalated to a type of sanctions that is going to have significant impact on everyday Russians. And I think they did so reluctantly. But that is the big difference here. We are now in a place where there's no way that everyday Russians aren't going to suffer from this situation. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. Paul Sony is a national security reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith, with additional reporting from Whitney Shefty. After the break, an alarming new report from the United Nations on the climate crisis. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. I don't know if you've ever been to Yosemite, but it's this really like stunning and special place. It has these snow-capped mountains and really like crystalline waterfalls. It's got incredible biodiversity. Hundreds of species are found there. And if the world continues along its warming trajectory, all of that could change. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. Tree mortality in the park would increase significantly. The amount of area burned by wildfires would triple. Some of the really cool, dark conifer forests would be replaced by more drought-tolerant kind of oak woodlands. And the species that depend on those forests would start to disappear. You would see endangered species vanish locally, new maybe invasive species coming in, it would not be the same landscape that we know and love and have preserved for more than 100 years. On Monday, the UN released a major report, and it's not good. It says that climate change is already causing massive disruptions to both humans and the natural world. And if we don't change course soon, we're on a path to a very dark and unequal future. And 
Frankly, I don't think that I've ever seen a report so dire. The language is just incredibly bleak. It describes millions of additional people dying from disease and malnutrition. It describes major natural disasters that render certain parts of the earth uninhabitable. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, really said, you know, he's read a lot of these reports and none have struck him like this one. He called it an atlas of human suffering. And basically, the report makes really clear that if humanity continues along its current warming trajectory, it's going to be a world of tremendous suffering and tremendous inequality. Sarah, can you tell me a little bit more about some of the more scientific details that were found in this report? The report, you know, looks at the current scale of impacts and then also projects out what the future might look like in different places. There's a chapter for each region around the world. And so if you look at current impacts, already we are seeing about 20 million people every year displaced by climate disasters. So whether that's someone having to evacuate from a hurricane or farmers having to permanently leave their homes because drought has made their livelihood no longer sustainable. We've seen mass tree mortalities, especially in North America and regions of Africa. 20% of trees have died since 1945. We've seen what? two species go... Yeah. That's astounding. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's bad. It's. I think that one of the things about this report is like, in some ways... We don't need the IPCC to tell us that climate change is horrific. Like, all you have to do is look out the window. I mean, Mm. all you have to do is pay attention to the things that have been happening over the past couple of years. The heat waves that kill hundreds of people, the floods that destroy, you know, entire villages or, or drown people in the subway system. We have created a really dire environment that is completely different from the one in which our civilization has been living for the past few thousands of years. And a lot of our systems are just not set up to cope with it. Mm. In addition to some of the impacts we're already experiencing, the report talks about how we're going to see crop yields decline, which causes food prices to go up and can lead to mass starvation. We're going to see an escalation of natural disasters beyond even what we've already experienced. More catastrophic fires, more devastating hurricanes, more frequent floods. We're going to see sea level rise, inundate coastal communities, and really imperil the existence of some places such as small island states where they just don't have a lot of bandwidth or room to adapt. So, Sarah, tell me more about this report. Where are we seeing the worst effects of climate change? You know, the thing that really struck me reading this report and gave me that kind of, like, physical sense of despair and anger is just how unequal these climate impacts will be. Even though no place on the planet is going to be spared some of the effects of climate change, they will hit the hardest in places that really contributed the least to the problem. Something that really stood out to me is in Africa, which as a whole continent contributes less than 3% of total global carbon emissions, is going to experience far and away more than half of the climate-related deaths from illnesses and extreme heat. It also is going to experience a more than a hundredfold increase in exposure to extreme heat, whereas compared to Europe, which is responsible for a much greater portion of 
global greenhouse gases, it'll only be a fourfold exposure to extreme heat under the worst case warming scenario. And you really think about like wealthy countries, you know, what was referred to as the global north, that wealth was created using fossil fuels, right? Using the process that has then led to all of this warming and all of this suffering. And yet the people who who don't benefit from that wealth, who don't live in countries that have that wealth, that have those resources that will allow them to adapt, countries in Africa, in Central and South America, in small island states around the world are suffering the most. It's just, it's such a bleak portrait of inequality that will only widen as the world continues to warm. Sarah, this sounds like a really wide-ranging report. Did it mention any kind of recommendations or prescriptions for solutions so that we might avoid this devastating fate? Yeah, I mean, I think that the report makes pretty clear that a lot of this destruction and hardship that we are seeing happening right now is not inevitable. A lot of it can be shaped and is shaped by political forces, by economic forces, by policy decisions, and by investment and adaptation. The world is about a little more than one degree Celsius or about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than in the pre-industrial era. And so we are seeing those impacts. But we also know that things like investing in protective ecosystems, like wetlands that help control flooding, can really reduce the effects of severe storms and sea level rise. We know that we can build homes that are more resistant to wildfires and that are easier to protect so that, you know, we don't lose entire communities when wildfires rage across the West. So all of these adaptations are options are out there. The problem is that the world is just not spending nearly enough on adaptation. Mm. And we have the capacity to adapt. Like we have the technology, we know what needs to be done in a lot of places. The problem comes in though when warming goes much beyond where we are now. If the world warms past 1.5 degrees Celsius, then you start to experience impacts that people can't adapt to these kind of abrupt and irreversible changes that there's no way around the destruction that they're going to cause. And you'll first start to see this in ecosystems because nature has these hard limits on adaptations where if a species goes extinct, it's never coming back, right? And eventually you'll start to see it in human systems because even though human societies have incredible ability to respond to a changing environment, there are hard limits on our ability to adapt too, right? I mean, there are temperatures that the body simply cannot stand. If it is sea level rise are flooding a house every single day, like there's no option but to leave. And now we have this window of opportunity to avoid the damage that exceeds our ability to adapt that is truly irreversible and untenable for human society. And scientists have generally said that that damage starts to begin around 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. And at our current pace of emissions, if you look at the policies that countries around the world have in place, scientists expect that we will hit that threshold, that 1.5 C, by the early 2030s. So both scientists and climate activists have been talking about the 2020s as a decisive decade. This is the decade in which human actions will determine whether 
we condemn ourselves and our future to climate impacts that cannot be tolerated and cannot be adapted to. I think that one thing that is important to point out, though, is that there is no such thing as, like, the end of the world with climate change. I mean, it's climate change is not a cliff that we fall off of. It is not a pass-fail course, scientists like to say. Every increment of warming creates a more dangerous and destructive future. But it also means that, like, there is no point at which it becomes useless or worthless to try to take further action. Mm. And when I become really distraught and honestly really heartbroken about the kinds of climate impacts that I know are coming and the kind of suffering that I know so many people will experience, I try to remind myself of this scientific truth that Every single ton of carbon that we avoid makes the future a little bit better. And that means that every single action, every single effort, every single attempt to communicate the problem and to help people understand the solutions really matters and it does make a difference. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svernofsky with editing from Robin Amer. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.